Hello and welcome to the Close Set Podcast. On today's episode, we will be revisiting the life and work of Alan J. Pakula, specifically three of his classic and most celebrated 70s films, which are collectively known as the Paranoia Trilogy. to see you where you been we never see you anymore you never call that's my jewish yenta voice that i've been working on needs work uh but in any case hello (laughs) it's been a while took some time off during the holidays and then i got an unexpected visit from the dreaded rona which really wasn't all that bad luckily but in any case i had to spend some time convalescing so my return to the show has been delayed i am now recovered and today we're actually debuting the new format for the show So instead of basically giving a comprehensive look at all the works of every director that is covered on every episode, what I'm doing, starting today, is basically selecting a few works from each director's catalog and making those the focus of the show. And so today, we're going to be talking about the Paranoia Trilogy. All three of these films were directed by the great Alan J. Pakula, who was a successful uh, producer, later transitioned to directing, and later became a screenwriter as well. And these three films were all made in the 70s. And the first is Clute, which came out in 1971. The Parallax View came out in 1974. And finally, All the President's Men, which came out in 1976. Those three make up the Paranoia Trilogy. And what ties them together, uh, just to give the broad strokes before we get into it, they're basically three films about ordinary people. Average people who have basically entered the crosshairs of a certain kind of evil that they have a hard time putting a face to. And oftentimes, especially in the latter two films in the trilogy, they're dealing with something that's much bigger than they are. And they basically all have to rely on their wits to either come out on top or escape with their lives intact and so on and so forth. And these films were made, like I said, in the 70s. And during this time, they were three of many films that sort of dealt with these feelings of, of dread and paranoia, suspicion, mistrust of the people in power criminal conspiracies, and so on and so forth. But before we get into all that, I would like to remind your ass uh, that you can find the show on the Spotify, the Apple Podcasts, the Google Podcasts, and the Podbean, pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. You know what to do. You know the drill, I imagine. And you can follow us on the Instagram if you'd like to keep track of uh, what's happening with the show and what we're going to be looking into next. The handle is Closed Set Podcast. That is Closed Set Podcast. And you can also get in touch with us via email at closedsetpod at gmail.com. That is closedsetpod at gmail.com. And now would actually be a good time to uh, to send us a little something, just to see what you think of the new format, if there are any adjustments you would like me to make, any uh, sort of constructive feedback, and uh, all that good stuff is always welcome. So please feel free. And with all that out of the way, as per usual, let us boogie. And like always, we will start at the very beginning. Now, Alan J. Pakula was born in the Bronx in New York City, just north of Manhattan, on April 7, 1928. And the J in Alan J. Pakula actually just stands for J, which is kind of funny. It's like that old Simpsons episode where Homer goes to 
his mom's old hippie commune, and he just finds out that the J in Homer J. Simpson just stands for J. That's what it reminds me of. But anyway, I digress. Never mind. So Pakula was a, was a New Yorker. He was born to a Polish-Jewish family, and his father owned a printing business, or ran a printing business, rather. And his father, reportedly, from what I've come to understand, uh, he basically hoped that Pakula would, would come to run the, the family business himself, if not become a doctor. Pakula, however, had other plans. He had spent a summer working for the uh, Leland Hayward Talent Agency after graduating from high school, and it was during that summer that he decided he wanted to go into show business. He was hooked. And so instead of, instead of living out his father's wishes, he ended up studying drama at Yale University. And Pakula is actually one of several directors that we've covered on the show that went to Yale. First was George Roy Hill studied music at Yale, and then uh, Ilya Kazan ended up studying drama at Yale himself. I encourage you to listen to those, those episodes if you haven't already. But in any case, Pakula goes to Yale, studies drama, uh, finishes in 1948. And it's after that that he gets hired, he moves out to Hollywood, and he gets a job in the cartoon department at Warner Brothers. And apparently he got the job through a friend of his father's. So his folks, it seems, were actually quite supportive of his, his aspirations. And after working in the cartoon department at Warner Brothers, he later moves to MGM and starts working as an assistant to Don Hartman, who is a writer, a director, and primarily a producer. Hartman ends up going to Paramount, becomes head of production there, and Alan J. Pakula ended up following Hartman to Paramount and kept working for him. In odd and wondrous ways, I became assistant to a head of production at, at Paramount, man and Don Hartman, working with writers and being in the front office. It was fascinating. I sat in at meetings, major meetings in which, I mean, I saw Audrey Hepburn's original screen test for Roman Holiday and was in on the meetings in which there was a major decision by about six or seven grown men on should Audrey Hepburn's teeth be straightened. <laughs> uh, just imagine what you, they do with Liza Minnelli and Barbara Streisand today. God, wisely they were not straightened. And it's during this time that Pakula began producing plays in New York. He uh, put on plays like There Must Be a Pony, which starred Myrna Loy, and he also worked with uh, George C. Scott on a play called Comes a Day. And he later transitions into producing films in his late 20s. And this was the beginning of a partnership with the director, Robert Mulligan, that lasted many years and produced many successful films, the first of which was called Fear Strikes Out. And this was about a mentally ill baseball player, Jimmy Pearsall. It's based on a true story. It starred Anthony Perkins, and that film came out in 1957. Pakula was 29 at this time. And he and Mulligan had a very fruitful partnership, like I said. The most successful film they made together was To Kill a Mockingbird, which came out in 1962. It starred Gregory Peck. It, Gregory Peck won Best Actor at the Oscars for it, and of course it's based on the classic novel by Harper Lee. And the film was nominated for Best Picture. Pakula himself was nominated. The best, the best Picture nominations are usually credited to the producers. Producers do all sorts of things, and a lot of producers do nothing. And uh, there's Some one of them are a guy with a cigar who gets the a money. Cigar, yes, and the most mm -hmm. important thing is he gets the money. Without money, all the artistic ideas in the world mean nothing. And, uh, mm -hmm. You sit around and fantasize about them. On Mockingbird, I uh, happened to call the writer's agent and said I thought there was a film in the book. And I walked into her office, and there was Harper Lee who wrote the book. And she took a liking to me. I was rather young and boyish then and very enthusiastic and intense and went down south and met her father, who was the basis of the character, Gregory Peck played. And she said I'd like him to do it. And so I got the rights to the book. And I would say that was my major contribution. And then I worked on the screenplay with Horton Foote mm -hmm. and cast the film. The one thing the producer doesn't do, you can distinguish directors from producers by what producers don't do, and that is they don't direct the actors. They don't work with the cameraman. They should not be, as far as I'm concerned, on the set. Because if you have uh, two 
a director and a producer on the set, it's like having two psychoanalysts. And yes, the, the uh, actors look to the producer for direction as well as the director. To Kill a Mockingbird was a huge success. And Pakula and Mulligan actually formed their own production company fairly early in their partnership. And they kept making films together after that. They made Love with the Proper Stranger. They made seven films in total, the last of which was The Stalking Moon, which came out in 1968 and starred Gregory Peck yet again. And Pakula has actually said in interviews that he quite enjoyed working with Mulligan to the point where his working relationship with Mulligan actually delayed his aspirations of becoming a director himself. I decided to be a director when I was 17 years old and directed my first film as I hit 40. <laughs> so that should be encouraging to all of you. And I think Bob set me back on directing several years because I enjoyed working with him and we were having a good time and I enjoyed the work. And suddenly I got to an age where I was working on a script. I'd taken an option in a book called The Sterile Cuckoo. And it was the first film that I directed. And suddenly it was life came into focus again. Whether you like or don't like the pictures, life takes on a dimension when you're doing what you really feel is right for you that's extraordinary. And his directorial debut was a film called The Sterile Cuckoo, which came out in 1969 and starred Liza Minnelli and Wendell Burton. It's basically an offbeat romance. Uh, and Liza Minnelli plays uh, an eccentric college student who has a romance with Wendell Burton's character. And the film was f pretty successful. Liza Minnelli got nominated for an Oscar for Best Actress for her performance. Those of you who don't know Liza Minnelli, first of all, shame on you. Second of all, she later won an Oscar in 1972 for the Bob Fosse film Cabaret. She was in New York, New York as well, the Scorsese film with uh, Robert De Niro in 1977. And she is the daughter of the great Judy Garland and the uh, accomplished and great director Vicente Minnelli, who directed Gigi and The Bad and the Beautiful and many other things. So in any case, success comes quickly to, to Pakula as a director, and it's after The Sterile Cuckoo that he made the first film in the Paranoia trilogy, and that film was Clute, which came out in 1971. Now this film stars Jane Fonda as an escort. She's a sex worker, a call girl, whatever term you want to use. And she becomes involved in an investigation involving a man who has gone missing and who is believed to have enjoyed the company of ladies of the evening. However, the police have hit a dead end. The investigation is basically dead in the water, and a friend of this man who's gone missing, played by Donald Sutherland, he stars as John Clute, he's a private investigator, and he decides to do his own investigating, and he comes into contact with Jane Fonda's character, Bree Daniels, and he initially starts following her and conducting surveillance on her, seeing what he can get. And he later comes to rely on her to sort of navigate her world of pimps and prostitutes and so on and so forth because he's a bit of a, he's a, bit of a square. He's definitely out of his wheelhouse. And he later comes to protect Jane Fonda because her life is in danger. And we talk about that sense of paranoia and these feelings of dread and helplessness. I mean, you have Jane Fonda who is an independent woman. She isn't beholden to anybody. But she starts getting random phone calls at all hours of the night but the person on the other end never says anything. She constantly thinks she's being watched or followed. There's trash left in front of her door. She thinks her mailbox is being pried opened. And then, of course, later on, somebody breaks into her apartment and kind of ransacks it. You didn't get him? No. Was it Grunman? I didn't see him. Who sent you on that date? Frankie Lagurin. You and I will go talk to Frank Lagurin tomorrow. 
And throughout this investigation, Jane Fonda is trying very hard to stay in control and not look like she's sort of coming apart at the seams. And this film really is as much a character study as it is a, a murder mystery. Because like I said, Jane Fonda is trying very hard to stay in control. She's dealing with a certain kind of evil that she can't put a face to. Like I said, she doesn't know who's behind these phone calls and the break-in and so on and so forth. And she doesn't have any recollection of this man who has gone missing. And yet as she gets more and more involved in this investigation, and as the stakes and the danger begin to grow, she becomes more and more desperate to remain in control of her life. And the movie looks at her compulsions, yes. Did I fail you, Brie? Well, I mean, I've been coming here all this time, and I've been paying you all this money, and why do I still want a trick? Why do I still walk by a phone and want to pick up the phone and call? But again, these attempts to stay in control are really the more fascinating parts of her. Because you look at the kind of work she does, she's an escort, and as much as her johns or her clients, her regulars may believe that they're the ones in control and calling the shots, it's really her who is. She's running the show. And she doesn't like that she's put her life in Clute's hands, in Donald Sutherland's hands. And as a way of coming out on top or sort of regaining control, she basically does that to him the way that she knows best. And she seduces him. Would you mind not doing that? Well, I thought I could trade you for those tapes. Doesn't it get lonely down there in your little room? Or maybe I can bring you some friends. I've got some terrific friends. No, thank you. Well, men have paid $200 for me, and here you are turning down a freebie. You could get a perfectly good dishwasher for that. And there's an interesting juxtaposition as well, because at the beginning of the film, you see she goes out on modeling gigs, she later auditions for acting roles and plays and such. But in those instances, she isn't in control. And what happens isn't really up to her. And she's just another girl, really. She's one of many auditioning for these parts. But then she goes back to her work, and she's back in control. And Jane Fonda's character even talks about this herself in the therapy scene. She sees a therapist, and there's only a couple scenes of them together, but they're some of the best in the film. And the camera is on Fonda for most of them. And she talks about the perks of her work and being in control and how uneasy she feels when she isn't. What's the difference between going out on a call as a model or as an actress and as a call girl? You're successful as a call girl, you're not because successful. Because when you're a call girl, you control it, that's why. Because someone wants you, not me. I mean, there are some Johns that I have regularly that want me, and that's terrific. But they want a woman, and I know I'm good, and I arrive at their hotel or their apartment, and they're usually nervous, which is fine because I'm not. I know what I'm doing. And for an hour, for an hour, I'm the best actress in the world and the best fuck in the world. And why'd you say you're the best actress in the world at that oh, time? Oh, because it's an act. That's what's nice about it. You don't have to feel anything. You don't have to care about anything. You don't have to like anybody. You just, uh, you just lead them by the ring in their nose in the direction that they think they want to go in. And you get a lot of money out of them in as short a period of time as possible. And, uh, and you control it and you call the shots. 
and I always feel just great afterwards. And so ultimately, while all this is happening, the stakes are getting higher, Fonda's suspicions are correct, she is in fact being followed, and it turns out that in fact the man they're supposed to be looking for was in all likelihood murdered, and the investigation leads them to a colleague of the victim who is trying to establish cover, and who it turns out enjoys the company of ladies of the evening and is physically abusive with them. And I won't say more, I've probably already said too much. So the cast of this film, Jane Fonda, like I said, stars as Brie Daniels, and she is incredible in this, so we're going to talk a little more about her in a second. Donald Sutherland, like I said, plays John Clute, the private investigator, and it's a very sort of restrained and understated performance from Donald Sutherland. He's very sort of, very stoic and laconic, but pulling that off is much easier said than done. It looks, it doesn't look like he's doing much, but it's hard to pull that off as an actor. Charles Chofi plays Peter Cable, who turns out to be a colleague of the victim. Donald Sutherland's character, John Clute, is regularly reporting to him with his with whatever progress he's making in the investigation, and it turns out, I mean, it's not much of a spoiler, You've, you figure this out fairly early on in the film, but it turns out that he is, in fact, killer, the guilty party. Roy Scheider shows up as well in a few scenes. I love me some Roy Scheider. He was in French Connection, which actually came out the same year as Clute. He was in Jaws, All That Jazz, Marathon Man, a fantastic actor, New Jersey native, and he shows up as Jane Fonda's former pimp, Frankie Lagorn. And, like I said, it's not a big part, but, but Scheider's great in this, as, as always. Dorothy Tristan shows up as a fellow sex worker and a colleague of Jane Fonda's. Vivian Nathan plays Jane Fonda's therapist, and like I said, the scenes between them are really great. They were entirely improvised. And Pakula has talked about this in interviews, where he was... He thought improvisation had its merits, and he had the idea for Fonda and Vivian Nathan to improvise their scenes together. And Vivian Nathan was a member of the actor's studio... And she had starred in the uh, Tennessee Williams play The Rose Tattoo on Broadway as well. Uh, didn't have very many film credits, but she and Fonda, like I said, their scenes together are some of the best in the film. And they're very revelatory for Jane Fonda's character. Because for much of the film, she has her guard up. She's afraid to be vulnerable. But obviously, it's in therapy that she can be totally honest with, obviously, with her therapist, but most importantly, with herself. I mean, I had more control before when I was with Trix. At least I knew what I was doing and I was setting everything up. Now I'd... I'd... <laughs> And that's what's so strange, is that I'm not setting anything up, that something is, I mean, you obviously know what this is like, but I've never felt it before. It's a new thing, and it's so strange, the sensation that something that is flowing from me naturally to somebody else, without its being prettied up, or, I mean, he's seen me horrible. He's seen me ugly, he's seen me mean, he's seen me hoary, and it doesn't seem to matter, and he seems to accept me, and I guess having sex with somebody and feeling that those sort of feelings towards them is, a, is, a, is very new to me, and I, and I, uh, and I wish that I didn't keep wanting to destroy it. Shirley Stoller shows up, as well in a small part. She plays a madam, and Shirley Stoller was in uh, the, the film The Honeymoon Killers, which was based on a true story and starred uh, her and Tony Lobianco. Uh, Jean Stapleton, who played either Edith Bunker and All in the Family, she shows up in a tiny part as well. And Candy Darling, who was uh, one of Andy Warhol's cohorts, 
and I believe was the first trans woman to perform on Broadway, she shows up in an un uncredited cameo, as does the great actor Richard Jordan. The two of them uh, show up briefly in a, in a nightclub scene. And so that's the cast of Clute. The film was shot by Gordon Willis on location in New York City. Gordon Willis, he's going to come up again because he shot all three films of the Paranoia Trilogy. And he shot all three Godfather films, did a ton of work with Woody Allen, worked on Annie Hall, Manhattan, Z-League. He shot Bad Company, which is a film that we talked about in our Robert Benton episode. And his work in this is genius. I mean, it's always great. But again, you want to talk about that feeling of, of helplessness, paranoia, the voyeurism, the feeling that, that the characters are being watched. There's this great scene. Jane Fonda has gone to see one of her regulars, an older man named Goldfarb. He's about 70 years old. And the scene begins, Fonda and this older John are in his office, and he pours the two of them a drink, and she begins regaling him with some bullshit story, and as Fonda is sort of laying it on thick, the camera is gradually moving out of the room, slowly, slowly, until the shot is framed at a distance from them, in a way that it looks like Jane Fonda and her John are being watched from afar. And then sure enough, the camera cuts, and it turns out, lo and behold, that Donald Sutherland is in fact watching them from a distance. There's another great shot as well where in Jane Fonda's apartment, where a good bit of the film takes place, there is a, there's a section of her ceiling that's made of glass. And yet again, this feeling of being watched, there's a, there are a couple shots, one in particular that comes to mind, that it's basically shot from the roof of her building through the glass portion, looking into Fonda's apartment, again, to give the feeling that she's being watched, being followed. And so that voyeuristic camera work really is, it's, it's excellent here. And it contributes to that feeling of unease. There's also that recurring visual of the recording device. You see it in the film's opening and at a couple other moments throughout the film. And that was actually an idea that Pakula had and didn't incorporate into the film until they had already started shooting. And what sort of ties everything together is the score. And it's done by a guy named Michael Small who later worked on uh, the Parallax View. He's going to come up again a little later. He worked on Marathon Man, The Stepford Wives, uh, but he wasn't really established uh, at the time the clute was made. Pakula sort of took a chance on him, and the score is perfect. And you see it gets sprinkled in, and from the opening credits, the mood is set, and there are these, it's really eerie, and there are these, these really high, sort of ominous piano notes that get peppered in throughout the film. It's genius stuff. Everything comes together beautifully. The cinematography, the music, the performances. It's a melodrama and a character study at the same time. And the rhythms of melodrama and the rhythms of character studies are just totally different. Melodrama has a kind of inevitable, relentless rhythm. And a character study has a much more leisurely thing. So it was a balancing act. And what I wanted to do was to make the melodrama and her personal trauma and tragedy come together all at once. It was the story of a girl who is destroyed by her own compulsions. If she'd been an accidental victim, I don't think I would have been interested in, in making that film. But the fact that she has a compulsion to seduce that almost destroys her in the end. And the film was a very big success. Got nominated for a couple Oscars. Andy and David Lewis got nominated for their original screenplay. Uh, I don't know if the two of them were related, but the, the, both of them did most of their work in television. They didn't write very many, uh, very many films. But they got nominated for an Oscar for this. And Jane Fonda won the first of two Oscars for Best Actress. And it's interesting, researching this film and watching old interviews, it turns out that Fonda never wanted the role. Or that she tried to convince Pakula to cast Faye Dunaway, which actually wouldn't have been... Faye Dunaway could have done this for sure. But in any case, Jane Fonda 
was a self-proclaimed feminist. And she was convinced that playing a prostitute would go against her politics, it would go against her beliefs in the feminist movement and so on and so forth. And she tried convincing Pakula to cast Faye Dunaway, like I said. And Pakula, to his credit, stuck with her. And it was a friend of Fonda's who ultimately convinced her to take the part. And I called up a friend of mine, a, a jazz singer named Barbara Dane, mm -hmm. who was a feminist. And I said, you know, I'm concerned. I'm, I'm supposed to do this movie about a call girl. And I just don't know if it's politically correct. I don't know if I use those words, but that's what I was asking about. And she said, well, send me the script. And I did. And she called me and said, listen, this script gives you a chance to go deep. Mm -hmm. And if you can go deep into any human being, that is feminism. Because it allows you to show an entire human being. And Fonda built the character from the outside in. So what she did was she started with the attire. She worked closely with the costume designer, a woman named Dan Roth. And a lot of Brie Daniels' wardrobe is based on Fonda's own wardrobe. The skirts, the 70s knee-high boots, and the shag haircut that you see, that, <laughs> that famous shag haircut that Fonda has in the film was actually, was actually her idea. She had gotten it at, a, at I think, her ex-husband's barber on the Lower East Side, if memory serves. And she had spent time in, uh, with a lot of sex workers in preparation for the film. And at that time, she had become a prominent activist. Because keep in mind, this is the early 70s. The war in Vietnam is still raging on. There are still American troops over there. And she's participating in rallies and anti-war protests. And uh, she had gone to Vietnam herself as well. She supported the Black Panthers. And her politics, her beliefs, uh, didn't sit well with some of the crew members on set. So from what I understand, the atmosphere on set was, was tense at times. And she and her first husband, Roger Vadim, who directed her in Barbarella, they were on the outs by this time. They didn't get formally divorced until, I believe, 1973. But uh, their marriage had hit the rocks by this time, and Donald Sutherland, who just so happened to share Jane Fonda's political beliefs, the two of them basically had an affair, and Sutherland later joined her in, uh, in her anti-war activism. And Fonda ended up winning a Golden Globe as well for her performance, and rightfully so, and uh, on award night, she had sent a Vietnam vet to go and collect the award for her, uh, but when it came time for the Oscars, she had asked her father, the great Henry Fonda, uh, who later won an Oscar of his own for On Golden Pond, she had asked Henry Fonda for some advice on what she should do for her acceptance speech if she won. And her father basically told her to keep it short and sweet. She left the politics out of it, and she followed his advice, and that was that. And that's all I got for Clute. But Pakula's next entry in the Paranoia trilogy didn't come until a few years later. The next film he made was totally unrelated. It was a romance film called Love and Pain and the Whole Damn Thing. This came out in 1973. It starred the great Maggie Smith and Timothy Bottoms, who was in the Peter Bogdanovich film The Last Picture Show. Uh, Maggie Smith is a dying woman. She is fairly older than Timothy Bottoms. A bit of a Harold and Maude thing going on, it seems. But in any case, the film Pakula made after that is the second entry in the Paranoia trilogy, and it is called The Parallax View, which came out in 1974. Now, this film stars Warren Beatty as a reporter, and his attempts to infiltrate and investigate an organization known as the Parallax Corporation. Now, they're a bit of a nebulous entity, but Beatty's character, Joseph Frady, stumbles upon them during an investigation that comes after the assassination of a presidential candidate. He's assassinated uh, at the Space Needle in Seattle, and in the years following the assassination, it turns out that the witnesses of the assassination are being knocked off one by one. 
And so Beatty is approached by a fellow reporter and an, and an old flame who was at the assassination and begins to fear for her life. Warren Beatty sort of writes her off, dismisses her claims as hysterics. You know, it's the girl who's cried wolf a thousand times. Since the assassination, six of these people have died in some kind of an accident. Four. Look, nobody's trying to kill you, huh? These people were killed. And whoever killed them is going to try to kill me. Austin Tucker thinks so, too. Austin thinks that maybe we all saw something up there. Yeah, well, we did see something up there, didn't we? No, I mean something else. Well, what do you mean by something else? Does he ever indicate what he means by that? Has he ever indicated to you that he saw anything other than what was in the commission report? No. Nothing? No. Did you see anything up there? No. Well, neither did I. And believe me, I looked. We all looked. You mean if you didn't see it, it's not there. Well, I didn't say that. It's just that I know all about these accidents. Ralph Scaletta was a known lush. He hit a piling on the George Washington Bridge. He killed three other people with him. Joy Holder died of anaphylactic shock when the doctor gave her the wrong antibiotic. Herbert Moon burned himself up in bed smoking, which his girlfriend always told him he was going to do, and Harry Letts had a heart attack. And sure enough, she turns up dead, and it prompts him to do some investigating of his own. And he's got the support from his editor. And in investigating the death, the mysterious circumstances surrounding the death of a judge who was a witness to the assassination, he stumbles upon this Parallax Corporation. And it turns out that this corporation is in the business of recruiting people with antisocial tendencies, mentally unstable people, and radicalizing them and turning them into political assassins. And the film draws on the paranoia and the conspiracy theories that came out of the Kennedy assassination. John F. Kennedy, for those who don't know was assassinated in November of 1963 in Dallas. And there have been countless conspiracy theories uh, surrounding his assassination because his official assassin was Lee Harvey Oswald. However, the Warren Commission was formed to investigate JFK's assassination, and they went with the theory that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, you know, it's the whole lone gunman hypothesis, and they basically just swept that under the rug and that was that. However, the lone gunman theory has since been disputed. And like I said, there are a million different theories and conspiracy ideas as to who killed JFK, who was involved, how deep it goes, and so on. Uh, the point being that the Warren Commission basically half-assed the investigation, went with a simple, the simple conclusion, and that was that. Which again, sowing the seeds of mistrust of those in power, conspiratorial thinking, and so on and so forth, right? So the film very much draws on that to the point where, at the beginning and end of the film, there are two political assassinations. And at the beginning and end, you see committees similar to the Warren Commission who go with the exact same story that after a thorough and intense investigation and all these man hours that were put in, we believe that the gunman acted alone and this, that, and the third, and it's a very simple and neat and tidy explanation. And, of course, the viewer knows better. And sure enough, at the first assassination at the beginning of the film, it is believed, again, by this commission that the shooter acted alone, although the viewer knows that at least two men were involved. After nearly four months of investigation, followed by nine weeks of hearings, it is the conclusion of this committee that Senator Carroll was assassinated by Thomas Richard Linder. It is our further conclusion that he acted entirely alone, motivated by a misguided sense of patriotism and a psychotic desire for public recognition. The committee wishes to emphasize that there is no evidence of any wider conspiracy. No evidence whatsoever. Now, it's our hope that this will put an end to the kind of 
irresponsible and exploitive speculation conducted by the press in recent months. And so after Warren Beatty's character learns of the existence of this nebulous and mysterious Parallax Corporation, he tries to infiltrate them. And as we said before, and what's a common theme of this paranoia trilogy of Pakula's, is that he doesn't really know what he's up against. And so he gets himself recruited, and his efforts actually lead him to a second political assassination. However, what Beatty doesn't know is that he's really in over his head, and he ends up becoming a target himself. And I won't say how the film ends, I don't want to spoil it for you. The point being is that the film is a very slow burn, and you're sort of, you keep watching it naturally expecting that Beatty's going to get a break in the case and that you're finally going to put a face to this corporation and find out who's pulling the strings and so on and so forth. But we never get there. And I don't think that's a bad thing. And of course, you're going to watch the film and you're going you're gonna to see that that's by design. The difference between the Parallax View and Clute, first and foremost, is that it isn't a character study. It's the fear and the paranoia and that sense of sort of unease that drives everything. Because Warren Beatty's character is basically an everyman. It's not a character piece. The, the, the story of the film is not really about him. And, like I said, he never really gets far enough to put a face to this organization and find out who the big shots are. We talk about these feelings of paranoia. It is a very nebulous evil that Beatty's character is trying to put a face to. And not just that, it's a kind of evil that's hiding in plain sight. You see the few low-ranking members that Beatty comes into contact with. They just look like average, plain, bland Americans. The offices of the Parallax Corporation are housed in a basically nondescript, run-of-the-mill office building. And again, Pakula talked about how he wanted viewers to leave the film being a little less trusting of the people sitting next to them. It's a great way of doing it just by making these parallax officials, these lackeys, just look like ordinary people. There's nothing impressive or memorable about them. And yet again, Gordon Willis comes back to shoot this, and his cinematography is just as brilliant as it is in Clute. And it's not just his cinematography, there are these long silences, these long stretches without dialogue where the action is moving very slowly, nothing is being said. And again, that sort of adds to the whole bleakness of the picture. And what Willis did is genius. The characters are often shot from a distance. Beatty especially. Pretty much through most of the moves he makes, he is being shot in a way that makes you feel that he is being watched. And there's another thing that Willis does as well. He shoots, he shoots characters from the other side of a glass door. He'll shoot Warren Beatty and his editor at the newspaper from outside his office, almost as if somebody's watching them or like the audience themselves. We as viewers are kind of eavesdropping on these conversations, right? And again, much like in Clues, and you see this much more in the Parallax view, a lot of characters show up and of course they're in fear for their lives. They think they've been marked for death. Sure enough, they are and they die under mysterious circumstances. And there are these two famous sequences in the film as well, two very memorable sequences. The first being is this long stretch where Warren Beatty basically thwarts the bombing of an airplane. Through his investigation, he finds out that the Parallax Corporation intends to bomb a plane full of passengers on its way to Denver. He rushes onto the flight. And this is back in the day where, it's, it's funny watching it today, back in the day in the early 70s, where you could just basically waltz onto a plane, barely go through security, show next to no documentation, and you could literally pay for your flight from your seat after takeoff. Um, <laughs> and so he rushes onto this flight. He figures out a way to alert the staff that there's a bomb on the plane without being noticed or attracting attention to himself and arousing suspicion. And luckily, the plane turns back, they evacuate it in time, and sure enough, Beatty was right. Uh, and it's a long, very tense sequence with next to no dialogue, and that is one of the most famous famous stretches of the film, and the most famous and most memorable. 
and it's one that re- that still holds up to this day, is the brainwashing scene. So like I said before, Beatty gets recruited into the organization. He makes them think that he is, you know, he has antisocial tendencies, that he's not the most stable person, and so he gets recruited, and they bring him in for his indoctrination. So they strap him into a chair, and what ensues is a five or six minute montage of a variety of images. And they're images that are associated with oneself, mother, father, country, images of violence, images of prominent public figures, whether it's Gandhi, Hitler, there are images of just regular old citizens, there are images of loneliness and isolation, and as the montage progresses, the order of these images changes, and they become associated with different things than at the beginning of the montage. And so these images keep rotating, they keep getting rearranged to where at the end, the person being indoctrinated, in this case Beatty's character, is supposed to left feeling like there is value in destruction, there is value in violence, and value in being someone who commits these sort of act, these sorts of acts. And as the whole montage is progressing, the music gradually, gradually builds, and it turns into this great sort of acid rock piece, and it's, it's a genius, genius montage. And Pakula picked all the images himself, and he talked about it in an interview when the film came out, of how he sort of put it together. I wanted to appeal to the most infantile sense of superhero fantasy. And some of this George Washington and the swastika, the Nazi party rally, and then this Kennedy and all that. And it's like nothing's really what it is anyway. And it whips you up to the unfairness of this world where everybody has everything. They have steak and meat and gold and fame and sex and love. And then I've been left out. But you can be Superman, or else you can give up and be destroyed. You can be Superman and break out and destroy. And then it ends on a happy note and make the world well again by destroying. And he brought back Michael Small as well. So Gordon Willis and Michael Small both came back for this. And Michael Small did the music for this. And it is perfectly arranged and orchestrated. And I love the way it builds throughout the montage. It's a wonderful piece of filmmaking. And so let's talk about the cast quickly. Uh, Warren Beatty, like I said, is the star of this film. I have made my feelings about Warren Beatty known on this show before. I am not a huge fan of him as an actor. I respect him as a producer, as a director. I think his, that's where his best work has been done. Uh, that said, I don't mind him in this because, like I said before, the story isn't really about him. He's an everyman. He's just sort of navigating, trying to navigate and learn more about a certain kind of evil that he's struggling to put a face to. And he doesn't understand the magnitude or just how, how far the reach of this corporation is. And so Paula Prentice is in this as well. She plays the old flame to Beatty's character that comes to him saying that she's been marked for death and that the witnesses of that first political assassination are being knocked off one by one. And she comes to him and she begins unraveling. You see her at the very beginning of the film. She's on assignment at the Space Needle in Seattle. It's during the 4th of July. And she's running the show and conducting her business. And she seems to be, you know, a, a, the consummate professional. And then the next time you see her, she is totally unraveling. She's coming apart at the seams. She's freaking out. And sure enough, her suspicions prove correct and she ends up dead. And it's interesting hearing Pakula talk about casting this role. He had actually envisioned this, this character as an older sort of Lauren Bacall type. It was originally a tough kind of woman, older than Warren, wisecracking, witty, sardonic woman. Paula comes into my office, looking wide-eyed and vulnerable, and she entranced me, and the vulnerability entranced me. And out of this came her character, the kind of the girl who seems so vulnerable and always in, in the verge of using that kind of intensity that the Paula is capable of. So you just say, oh, it's the kind of girl crash will too often. Well, out of that came the whole character, the girl who was been in a constant panic. And Paula Prentice is wonderful, as always. You don't, she isn't in it for very long, but it's a great performance from her. And uh, I've talked about her a little bit before. She was in the world of Henry Orient, the great George Roy Hill film. 
And Hume Cronin shows up as well. I've mentioned him a couple of times on the show as well. He plays Warren Beatty's editor. And although it's not really a character piece, a lot of really great actors come in and out of this film in different capacities. And Hume Cronin is one of them, a great Canadian actor. He was married to the great Jessica Tandy for decades. And he was in a number of wonderful films, including uh, Brute Force, the great Jules Dassin film. He was in The Postman Always Rings, Always Rings Twice. And we've mentioned him in a couple episodes, and he's great in this as always. Sheriff L.D. Wicker and two of his deputies were indicted three months ago on a utility scandal up there. It was in every paper in the Northwest. He knew you were a reporter, but it wasn't any national conspiracy he was covering up. You were in a whole different ballgame. You didn't even know it. You remember the four years ago you were sure you'd caught the state senator's bag man and it turned out to be his nephew's bookie? Uh, William Daniels. He shows up as an aide to the presidential candidate that gets assassinated at the beginning of the film. And like Paul Apprentice's character, you witness a complete transformation. He isn't in it for very long. But at the beginning, you see him. He's well-groomed and well-put-together and seems to be confident and someone who has his shit together. And he shows up later in the film, and it's a complete 180. He's, dis he's disheveled. He is totally helpless, almost childlike, really. And again, he isn't in it for long, but he is excellent in this. Now, I don't know what you want, but if it's money... I'll give you $10,000 to keep me out of it. You don't mention my name. You don't come looking for me. All I want is to stay out of it. Sorry, Mr. Tucker. You got information I need. Money doesn't mean anything to me. This story's going to mean more to me than $10,000. Fella, you don't know what this story means. William Daniels, by the way, is still with us. He's in his 90s. And he was a Brooklyn guy, but for whatever reason, he had that sort of trademark Massachusetts Brahmin accent that a lot of prominent families from there had, which is fitting because given the parallels between this film and JFK and his brother Robert F. Kennedy, they were from Massachusetts and they had that exact same speech pattern. So it's, it is kind of fitting, oddly, and I don't know if that was a coincidence or not uh, with William Daniels casting. Uh, but he also showed up in The Graduate, the great Mike Nichols film with Dustin Hoffman, he was the voice of Kit on Knight Rider. He was in St. Elsewhere. And if you are a 90s baby like I am, you know William Daniels as Mr. Feeney in Boy Meets World. But in any case, enough about him. Kenneth Marr shows up as an ex-FBI agent that uh, Warren Beatty asks for help in establishing cover and getting himself recruited into the Parallax Corporation. Kenneth Mars was in the great Peter Bogdanovich screwball comedy film uh, What's Up Doc in 1972. He also did some work with Mel Brooks. He was in The Producers. He was in Young Frankenstein. What I know is I need a good alias and I need a good ID. What kind of an ID? Gotta be a hostile misfit. For that, you don't need an ID. Walter McGinn is another great actor with another wonderful performance in this. He is the recruiter who approaches Warren Beatty about joining the Parallax Corporation. And like I said, he looks like nothing. Just a regular garden variety dude. Not physically imposing, kind of short, diminutive. But there is something a little sinister about him. You have difficulty holding on to a job, don't you? I don't know. I just don't like to take a lot of shit so people say I got antisocial tendencies. Right. But tell me, has it ever crossed your mind that maybe it's everybody else's problem that they don't get along with you? And uh, Walter McGinn, unfortunately, died. he died tragically in a car accident in 1977. He was only 40 years old, but he is excellent in this. And he was also in Three Days of the Condor. Jim Davis shows up in this. Jim Davis had a shit ton of credits, was in dozens of films, did a lot of work in television as well. He shows up in Bad Company, which we talked about in our Robert Benton episode, and he plays another prominent politician that is marked for death, and he shows up a little later in the film. And that's another wonderful, wonderfully put-together sequence. Uh, Jim Davis was also in the primetime soap Dallas uh, later in life. Stacy Keach Sr., father to the wonderful character actor Stacy Keach, 
Uh, he shows up in this as one of the heads of the investigative committee that is basically a play on the Warren Commission. And again, that's another thing that adds to the sense of mistrust and paranoia. You have this committee who is basically half-assing their investigation and taking the easy way out, and you don't know if they're inept or corrupt or both, I guess. Anthony Zerbe shows up. Uh, he plays a psychologist, so it's it's Anthony Zerbe's character and Kenneth Marr's character, the, ex the ex-FBI agent, that give Warren Beatty an in on how to get recruited into this organization. Anthony Zerbe plays a psychologist and basically helps Beatty figure out that the Parallax Corporation are in the business of recruiting people who are unstable. And it's an uncredited appearance from Anthony Zerbe. He's only got the one scene, but he was great. He was in The Omega Man as well. He was in The Matrix sequels in the early 2000s. A uh, really good actor who's done a bunch of good work. He was also in Who'll Stop the Rain, which we talked about in our Carol Rice episode. And lastly, Earl Hindman, who played Wilson on Home Improvement and was also in the great film The Taking of Pelham 123. He plays a deputy in a small sort of hick town that uh, Beatty heads to as part of his investigation. They have a barroom fight that I really don't like. It's kind of silly, and it doesn't really fit the tone of the rest of the film, but in any case. So that's the cast. The film was adapted from a 1970 novel, which was written by Lauren Singer. And like the film, the novel plays heavily on the Kennedy assassination. And there are parallels to JFK and RFK. So again, we talk about the committee that half-asses their investigation. They go with the lone gunman theory. And we also have the presidential candidate who was shot at the very beginning of the film at the Space Needle. And he's kind of reminiscent of RFK, JFK's brother Robert F. Kennedy, who was a senator. Uh, he was basically going to run for president in the 1968 election before his own assassination. And the script was written by Lorenzo Semple Jr. and David Geiler. David Geiler had come in uh, for rewrites. However, the production began with an unfinished script because the writers had gone on strike. And so Pakula spent much of the shoot actually talking about the dialogue with the actors as they went along. And just because they, they went to work without a completed script, Warren Beatty reportedly enlisted the help of Robert Town, the great screenwriter. He wrote The Last Detail, Chinatown, and he later worked with Beatty on Shampoo in 1975. So they had three different people work on the script, but they had to sort of make do with what they had and sort of make up the rest as they went along because the, the writer's strike left them without a completed script, or a polished script, I should say. Talk about improvisation. There were a few major changes along the way. For example, when Hume Cronin called me and he said, I'm in town, Alan, and it's Friday, and I work on Monday, and the script I read, uh, I played a police chief. He told me a couple of weeks ago when I thought I was going to be a newspaper editor, and uh, just wanted to know if you'd settle on which I'm going to do in your mind. I said, well, yeah, you're going to be a newspaper editor. And he said, gee, it would be nice to, to see some pages. And interestingly enough, before the making of this film, Warren Beatty was politically active himself, and he had spent a lot of time campaigning and raising money for George McGovern, who was the Democratic candidate and later lost to Richard Nixon in the 72 election by a pretty wide margin. And while this film was being made, the Watergate scandal was unfolding, which we're going to talk about shortly. But that story was developing during the making of this film, speaking of mistrust and corruption and criminal conspiracies. And so the film ultimately got mixed reviews. It wasn't nearly as successful as Clute. However, it is much more highly regarded today, and it is often considered one of the best conspiracy thrillers of the 1970s. And rightfully so, I think. And so the next film Pakula made rounds out the Paranoia trilogy. And it is a film called All the President's Men, which came out in 1976. And this is based on a true story. We go, speaking of the Watergate scandal, the film follows two reporters for the Washington Post. Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, played by Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford, respectively. As they uncover the Watergate scandal. Now, gotta provide a bit of historical context for those who might not know. So the Watergate scandal 
began in 1972, in June of 1972. Five burglars broke into the Democratic National Committee's headquarters in the Watergate complex in Washington, D.C., and they went in to obtain documentation, get some information from Democratic National Committee files. They were going to bug the office, and the burglars were caught, and upon further investigation, it turned out that all five burglars had some kind of connection to the CIA. The White House's legal counsel also had CIA ties, so the investigation tied the burglars and him together, and upon investi further investigation, it turns out that the money that was paid to the burglars for this break-in was tied to Nixon's committee to re-elect. So the committee for Nixon's re-election campaign in the 72 election basically had a slush fund, which was used to pay various people to conduct various kinds of fuckery on behalf of the, the Nixon administration. And so the story is initially thought to be of little importance when the burglars are caught. And Woodward and Bernstein don't really know each other, they're not friends. And they're basically just sort of lumped together to follow this story. And the more they investigate, and the more they begin to follow the money, the higher up the flagpole they go in the Nixon administration. And they find out about the existence of the slush fund, and how very, very high-ranking White House officials are involved. And not just that, they find out that the Nixon administration is prone to a practice known as rat-fucking, which basically are sabotage efforts. So it could be a fake press release, it could be a smear campaign, spreading false rumors and allegations, which were basically meant to sabotage Democratic candidates. And the money from the slush fund would be used to pay out those perpetrators who are spreading the rumors and conducting this sabotage, right? And so this criminal conspiracy goes all the way up the food chain, reaching as high as the White House Chief of Staff, H.R. Haldeman. And so it's an uphill battle for Woodward and Bernstein. Like I said, they don't start out on the best of terms. How's it going? What are you doing? Partial. What? Partial. What's wrong with it? Nothing, nothing. It's good. Then what are you doing with it? I'm just helping. It's a little fuzzy. May I have it? I don't think you're saying what you mean. I know exactly what I mean. Not here. I can't tell from this whether Hunt works for Colson or Colson works for Hunt. May I have it? Please? Some of your conclusions. May I have it? Yes, I'm not looking for a fight. I'm not looking for a fight either. I'm just aware of the fact that you've only been here nine months. What does that got to do with anything? Well, I've been in the business since I'm 16. What are you saying? Well, I'm trying to tell you that if you'd read mine and then read yours... May I read yours? Yeah. I walked by, gave yours a glance, it didn't look right, so I just figured I'd refine it a little. That first paragraph has to have more clarity. The reader's gonna understand. You don't mention Colson's name through the third paragraph. I think mine's better, but you go ahead and read it. If you think yours is better, we'll give yours to the desk. I've got Colson's name up front. He's a White House consultant and nobody knows right. it. Yours is better. And despite their best efforts, they really have a hard time getting solid confirmations on their leads. And it's interesting, you talk about the paranoia and the mistrust and so on and so forth. Oftentimes, the suspicions don't really come out of what's being said, it's more out of what isn't being said. And they're having a hard time getting a solid yes or a no from the people that they interview and their sources, and they have to get their confirmations on their leads or denials on their leads, uh, basically in these roundabout ways. Because yet again, this recurring theme in the Paranoia Trilogy, the people they interview, the lackeys, the sort of lower-ranking officials who are implicating these higher-ups these higher at the White House, a lot of them feel like they're being watched, they're afraid of reprisals from their superiors, and so Woodward and Bernstein basically have to go to ridiculous lengths <laughs> to get breaks in their stories. Hi, this is Carl. I'm sorry to disturb you now, but we're going with the story that Holden was the fifth man in control of the fund, and they're hassling us here. We've got three confirmations, but if you could just help us, I'd appreciate it. I won't say anything about Haldeman, not ever. I understand that we wouldn't want you to do that. We know it's against the law for you to say anything. If there's some way you could warn us to hold on the story, we'd appreciate it. I'd really like to help you, but I can't. Look, 
I'm gonna count to ten, all right? If there's any reason we should hold on the story, hang up the phone before I get to ten. If the story's all right, you'll just be on the phone after I get to ten, all right? Hang up, right? That's right. You got it? Yeah. We're straight. All right, I'm gonna start counting. Okay? We all right? Yeah. Okay, I'm counting. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You got it straight, man? Everything okay? Everything's fine. And of course, articles are being published the more they find out about this this cover-up and this vast criminal conspiracy. And while all this is going on, Nixon actually gets re-elected. Speaking of George McGovern, he beats McGovern in the 72 election, like I said, by a pretty wide margin. And like I said, the film is shot by Gordon Willis. He shot all three films. He comes back for this one yet again. He makes great use of shadows in this as well. You see it in, in the Watergate complex at the beginning of the film, and you see in Robert Redford's scenes, Bob Woodward's scenes, with an anonymous source called Deep Throat. The two of them meet in an underground parking garage and of course Deep Throat wants to remain anonymous and he's always covered in shadows you never get a, a good clear look at him because of course he wants his identity to remain a secret it's all very clandestine and Deep Throat first of all the the pseudonym comes from a 70s porn film and Deep Throat was an anonymous source that Woodward had used before and again we talk about this this whole sense of mystery and suspicion Deep Throat wants to remain anonymous. He is clearly a big shot for some organization somewhere. And he seems to intimidate Woodward a little bit. And it's him that tells Woodward that they should follow the money. That'll, t that'll lead them to where they, their investigation needs to go. Forget the myths that the media has created about the White House. The truth is, these are not very bright guys. And things got out of hand. Hunts come in from the cold. Supposedly, he's got a lawyer with $25,000 in a brown paper bag. They follow the money. What do you mean? Where? Oh, I can't tell you that. But you could tell me that. No, I have to do this my way. You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. And sure enough, it leads them to the slush fund in the from the committee to re-elect. But finally, after all these bumps in the roads and after all the, the sort of non-denial denial by by White House officials, as the stories come out, non-denial denial is basically when they're condemning the investigation but without denying the allegations outright. So they seem to be raising a fuss and it looks like they're denying the allegations on the surface but not really. They're not really addressing them head on, which also gives the reporters and their editors the sense that they're they're headed in the right direction. But after all their efforts and failure to get solid confirmations and their sources being reluctant to give their names, a lot of them want to remain anonymous because they're scared shitless, finally Woodward gets fed up and asks Deep Throat for a straight answer. And it turns out that H.R. Haldeman, the White House Chief of Staff, is the mastermind behind this whole thing. And not just that, the FBI and the CIA and various investigative units and intelligence agencies are all involved in some form or another in the fuckery. So again, we go back to that thing where Woodward and Bernstein are struggling to put a face or a mastermind or a shot caller or a puppet master to this whole criminal conspiracy, and much like in the Parallax view, this whole thing turns out to be an operation that is far-reaching and much, much bigger than either Woodward or Bernstein could have imagined. However, it doesn't end on nearly as bleak a note as the Parallax view. It actually ends on quite a, quite a nice note. The two of them keep plugging away, 
and Richard Nixon actually ends up resigning in 1974. So this was a very, very intricate story, a very big scandal, and ultimately Richard Nixon had to step down from office. Woodward and Bernstein's efforts played a big role in this. And like I said, it's based on a true story. Woodward and Bernstein ended up writing a 1974 book that Robert Redford ended up buying the rights to to get this film made. And so let's talk about the cast a little bit. Robert Redford, like I said, he plays Bob Woodward, and the production was his baby. He paid a pretty penny for the rights to the book. The film was put together through his production company, Wildwood Productions, and it was Walter Koblenz who was credited as producer on the film, his partner. And it was them who brought in Pakula to direct. So Pakula was basically a director for hire job. As much as, as perfectly as this film fits into the Paranoia trilogy, it was really Redford's baby. Uh, Dustin Hoffman plays Carl Bernstein. Dustin Hoffman, obviously a legendary actor, one of the best ever. We talked about him a lot in our Robert Benton episode for the film Kramer vs. Kramer. He won his first Oscar for that, was in Rain Man, won another Oscar for that as well. The Barry Levinson film was in The Graduate and Midnight Cowboy, a million and one wonderful performances. So the two of them are Woodward and Bernstein. Jack Warden and Martin Balsam, two of the best character actors ever. They play Harry Rosenfeld and Howard Simons, respectively, and they're two editors at the Washington Post, where Woodward and Bernstein work, and the editors are kind of reluctant to get fully behind this story. And Jack Warden, like I said, an incredible character actor, was in Shampoo, Twelve Angry Men, Edge of the City, Heaven Can Wait, you name it. And Martin Balsam won an Oscar for a film called A Thousand Clowns, we've talked about him as well, he was in 12 Angry Men with Jack Warden. He was in On the Waterfront, The Taking of Pelham 123. A wonderful and celebrated character actor, and the two of them are great in this. And like I said, much again, this is another thing similar to the Parallax view. The two leads are giving pretty understated performances because, like I said, the story isn't really about them. It's not a character-driven piece. But the supporting performances really shine, even, even the small parts. So you've got Jack Warden, Martin Balsam, and Jason Robards, who plays Ben Bradley, the head editor of the Washington Post. And Robards didn't look or sound like Ben Bradley. Ben Bradley himself actually came from a well-to-do Massachusetts family. And Robards does a wonderful job here of, of coming off as a bit of an elitist, but without having to do too much. He's, he's dressed to the nines. And he has a bit of that air of sort of, you know, that elitist sort of superior air about him. And he comes off a little pompous at the beginning. And he seems kind of dismissive of Woodward and Bernstein at the beginning. He says their story is a little thin. What else are you working on? Well, we're after a list of creep employees. Where is it? It's classified. Well, how are you going to get it? We haven't had any luck yet. Get some. But ultimately, as the story unfolds, and more and more fuckery is uncovered, uh, he comes to be a real ally to the boys, and he stands behind them, and he also gives them a word of caution and how they proceed. You know, once when I was reporting, Lyndon Johnson's top guy gave me the word. They were looking for a successor for J. Edgar Hoover. I wrote it, and the day it appeared... Johnson held a press conference and appointed Hoover head of the FBI for life. When he was done, turned to his top guy and the president said, call Ben Bradley and tell him fuck you. <laughs> well, everybody said, you did it, Ben. You screwed up. You stuck us with Hoover forever. I screwed up. But I wasn't wrong. And it's a wonderful performance by Jason Robards. He was in Once Upon a Time in the West, Isadora, uh, Long Day's Journey into Night, he was also in the Paul Thomas Anderson film Magnolia, which I think was his final performance. A wonderful, wonderful actor. Hal Holbrook plays Deep Throat. And Deep Throat, like I said, was an anonymous source. Pakula never found out who he was. Bob Woodward never divulged who he was. At least not for many years. And it wasn't until 2005 
that Deep Throat's identity was revealed, and it turns out that he was in fact a big shot. It was actually a man named Mark Felt, who was the associate director of the FBI. I think by the time it was revealed that Mark Felt was in fact Deep Throat, I think his health was failing and he died a few years later. Uh, but his identity was kept a secret for decades. So Hal Holbrook plays him in this, and he is wonderful. Great presence on screen, very intimidating, uh, and it certainly helps that he's basically in the shadows every time you see him. Uh, Jane Alexander shows up in this. She plays a bookkeeper who has intimate knowledge of the slush fund and the White House officials that were, were responsible for managing it. Uh, Jane Alexander, a wonderful actress, four-time Oscar nominee. She and Dustin Hoffman later worked together on Kramer vs. Kramer in 1979. A wonderful, wonderful film, and she is great as usual, and this included. Is there any evidence that uh, uh, any of Mr. Mitchell's assistants uh, were part of this? I had all the evidence. It was destroyed. I don't know who destroyed it. I think Gordon did a lot of shredding. Hard evidence. Well, I can't say that it would positively prove that they planned the break-in, but it would come pretty close. And a lot of other great actors show up in smaller parts. Ned Beatty, who passed away last year, may rest in peace. Another great character actor. Lindsay Krauss, who we've mentioned on the show a few times. Penny Fuller. Robert Walden, who plays one of the men that the White House administration would uh, would enlist for their rat-fucking practices. F. Murray Abraham shows up in a small part. He later won an Oscar for Amadeus in 1984. Dominic Chianese, who plays Uncle Junior in The Sopranos, he plays one of the White House burglars. Although I don't think he has any lines in the film, if memory serves. But in any case, a ridiculous assembly of talent. And let's uh, give a, little, a few production notes as, as to the making of this film. Uh, so like I said, Robert Redford bought the rights. And he got William Goldman to write the script. William Goldman had written Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which we talked about in our George Roy Hill episode. Uh, Robert Redford starred in that with Paul Newman. And he also wrote The Great Waldo Pepper, which Redford had starred in in 1975, also directed by George Roy Hill. So the two of them knew each other fairly well. So Redford gets him to write the script. But apparently he wasn't happy with Goldman's first draft. And the real Carl Bernstein himself and... His lady, Nora Ephron, who was a filmmaker and a journalist herself, the two of them took it upon themselves to write their own draft. Redford took a look at it, and apparently he had suggested that Goldman take a look at it and see what parts of it he could work into his own script, which, of course, Goldman was not too pleased with. And from what I understand, Redford and Pakula uh, both did some work on the script themselves. However, it looks like the final product was basically a William Goldman script, so he was properly credited as the sole screenwriter on this. And Goldman himself was not happy with Bernstein's rendition or his telling of the story. He thought it was a little too, a little too flattering for Bernstein. Uh, we kept agonizing over should we show their personal lives. And a lot of scenes were written about their personal lives. I have endless research from Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein about the girls they were going with at that time, and funny and colorful things that happened to them at that time. And we had a whole collection of scenes. We even shot one scene with Dustin and a girl. And it always seemed parenthetical. I mean, we weren't doing this picture about Wilbert and Bernstein because they were these great Romeos or had these wonderfully fascinating personal lives. It was what they did in their work. And ah. the minute we made that decision, finally, uh, we, the picture got freed and it, its form became solid. It's Dustin never agreed with that decision, I don't think. He always felt that something of the... stuff was left out. And yeah. And when casting the role of Ben Bradley, the head editor of the Washington Post, a million and one actors were considered, apparently. So from what I understand, at different points, Carl Malden, Hal Holbrook, who later played Deep... who ended up playing Deep Throat, Richard Widmark, Gene Hackman, Henry Fonda, Christopher Plummer, John Forsyth, Telly Savalas was one of my people, 
Those are just a few of a ton of names who were at some point or another considered to play the role of Ben Bradley. It ultimately went to Jason Robards. And I think Ben Bradley had some trepidation about Robards being cast to play him. But And the two of them had met, of course. But like I said, it's a fantastic performance from Jason Robards. And I think his Oscar win was well-deserved. And in preparation for their roles as Woodward and Bernstein, Hoffman and Redford both spent a lot of time at the Washington Post offices. The film began shooting in May of 1975, shot in Washington, D.C., of course, where pretty much the entire story is set, or most of it at least. And when shooting the scenes for the Washington Post offices, the production did not have access to the actual Washington Post newsroom. So what the set designers did, and this was hats off to them, because what, they, what the set designers did, they took measurements... They used photographs as, as reference points, and what they did was basically recreate an exact replica of the Washington Post Office in a studio in Burbank, California. And they ordered the exact same desks that were in the Washington Post newsroom. They had them painted the same color. They recreated old phone books that were by then out of date. And they even used actual brick from the, the original Washington Post newsroom and had it replicated with fiberglass to fully recreate their own newsroom in the studio, and even Ben Bradley himself admitted to being very impressed with it, with their reproduction, and just how accurate it was. And the budget came in at over $8 million, from what I understand. The film ended up making over $70 million, so it was a huge success. Easily the most successful film of Pakula's career, and it got eight Oscar nominations. It was nominated for Best Picture. Pakula himself was nominated for Best Director. They lost in both those categories to Rocky. Rocky ended up winning Best Picture, and John G. Avlitson ended up taking the Oscar for Best Director. Which I think is ridiculous, but you know, what are you going to do? People love a good underdog story. And Jane Alexander was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, and rightfully so. Like I said, Jason Robards ended up winning Best Supporting Actor. First of two Oscars he would win. Uh, William Goldman won for his screenplay. And the film also ended up winning for Best Art Direction. Three well-deserved wins. And it's an incredible film. And like I said, it, it fits perfectly into the trilogy. It's, it's a, they put a really nice button on it with this. Even though it wasn't Pakula's baby to begin with, and it ends on a much nicer note than the Parallax view. <laughs> so let's talk about the trilogy as a whole, in summation, if I may. And so again, obviously, the three films collectively are known as the Paranoia Trilogy. Pakula himself, I don't think, coined the term. It was probably some critic, as the, you know, their, as their want to do. The tones of the three films are very similar. There's an air of mystery about all of them, feelings of dread, helplessness, mistrust, unease. And especially in the in the latter two films, The Parallax View and All the Presidents of Men, there are vast and intricate conspiracies at play. And in all three films, you're dealing with basically average Americans, regular people, all of whom are kind of isolated. They're kind of loners. They don't have very many people in their lives. I mean, beginning with Clute, you look at Brie Daniels, Jane Fonda's character. She's a sex worker. She's a prostitute. And she doesn't really have many friends... The people from the life that she does know are basically adrift. Some of them are hooked on drugs. They're beholden to pimps. And really the only ally she has is John Clue, Donald Sutherland's character, who's a man that she barely knows. And she's an independent woman. She basically fends for herself. And then you have Joseph Frady, Warren Beatty's character, in the Parallax view. All he has is Paul Apprentice's character, who's an old flame and a colleague, and she dies pretty early on in the film. And then he basically conducts his investigation, his undercover operation, with the support of his editor. And that's about all he's got. He's And obviously, his editor isn't actively participating in the investigation, so Freddy's basically out on his own. And of course, in All the President's Men, you have Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, who don't really know each other. They don't start, start out on the greatest of terms. They butt heads a little bit. Their editors basically throw the two of them together, and the two of them are basically outcasts. You have Bob Woodward, who, at the time of the story, 
is fairly new to the newsroom. I mean, they mentioned that he's been there for nine months. He's come from the middle of nowhere in some place in Illinois. And you have Carl Bernstein, who maybe has a tough time meeting, meeting his deadlines. And the two of them are thrown together. And oftentimes, there is a certain feeling of dread or helplessness in a lot of the characters in these three films. Because they're faced with an evil that they can't really comprehend. And oftentimes that they can't see. And all these characters have really in their lives is their work. And these films were made in, at an interesting time for cinema. The 70s produced, it's, it might be my, my favorite time in cinema. And it was at a time, especially in Hollywood, what, what some people like to call the new Hollywood, when the inmates were basically running the asylum. And it was a, it was a time that produced so many incredible filmmakers. Peter Bogdanovich, who passed away recently, may, may rest in peace. Robert Altman, William Friedkin, Woody Allen, Hal Ashby. And oftentimes, these directors were making films for cheap, and they had a good bit of autonomy. They were basically able to make their own films on limited budgets without producers or studios kind of meddling in their business. And Pakula was one of them. And these three films are classics. I mean, like I said, Parallax View basically got a second win. It's much more highly regarded today than it was when it came out, but even still. And this trilogy, it's made up of three of many films that came out during that time that, again, dealt with this mistrust in institutions, corruption, criminal conspiracies feelings of paranoia. I mean, you look at The Conversation, the Francis Ford Coppola film with Gene Hackman, which came out in 1974. That's a great example. You have Chinatown, the Roman Polanski film, which deals with, again, a criminal conspiracy, corruption in local government, a murder that's being covered up. And that's a wonderful film, 1974, written by Robert Town, directed by Roman Polanski, and it's with Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway. Another classic. And another one that fits into this mold of the Paranoia Trilogy, even though it's a period piece. You have The Three Days of the Condor, which coincidentally also starred Robert Redford. That came out in 1975. Another conspiracy thriller. So these three films, original as they are, uh, were three of many that came out during this era that dealt with these things. And keep in mind, just historically for a little bit of context, this comes after the 1960s, which was the height of the counterculture movement, speaking truth to power, condemning the war in Vietnam, which was still raging by the early 70s when Clute came out. And it comes after several political assassinations. Like I said, JFK was assassinated in 63. His brother Robert was assassinated in 68. And there's still a shit ton of mystery surrounding JFK's assassination. And again, the Warren Commission certainly didn't help with that. And after all this, you go into the early 70s, and then you have the Watergate scandal, which unfolds in 1972. Speaking of, you know, again, corruption at the highest levels of government. And I don't think these films the Paranoia Trilogy and a lot of the these films that came out in the 70s and these directors that, that rose to prominence during that time, I do not think these kinds of films could be made today, or at least not nearly as easily. Mostly because the, the studio infrastructure today is far too corporatized. There's too many cooks in the kitchen. I mean, a lot of these studios and production companies are owned by multinational corporations, which means a lot more people get a say in what gets made and what doesn't. And like I said, it's corporatizing art to the point of stagnation, like, it's factory filmmaking. It's just the same ideas getting rehashed over and over. Or old tried-and-true formulas that keep getting milked until they're boring as fuck. So I don't think that the films of Pakula and Altman and the like could be made, at least not nearly as easily, under today's infrastructure. Because back in the day, and a lot of filmmakers, if you watch old interviews, Peter Bogdanovich included, have lamented the fact that you can't get films made as easily anymore. Because back in the day, in the golden age of the studio system especially, basically all you needed was one person to greenlight a film to get it made. And that was that. So it would, it'd be an uphill battle, to say the least. And so after all the President's Men, I mean, Pakula basically kept on churning out films pretty steadily. He kept up a pretty good work rate up until he died. 
he released some he put out some other really successful pictures. I mean, in 1979 he puts out Starting Over, which is a romantic comedy. It's sweet and it's kind of superficial, but there are some great performances in it. It's a James L. Brooks script and it stars Jill Clayburg, Burt Reynolds, and a different turn for Burt Reynolds as a romantic lead. I mean, he was he was one of the highest grossing stars of his time in the 70s. And he was a leading man for much of his career, but he had that sort of macho, sort of alpha male thing about him. And starting over was a different turn from him, just casting him as a romantic lead, and there's a certain sweetness about him. And he was very good. It's a pleasant surprise watching Burt Reynolds in this film. And Jill Clayburgh is wonderful. Candice Bergen is great, too. She makes a total ass of herself, and I mean that in a good way. Uh, so that came out in 1979. He put out Sophie's Choice, too, and this was Pakula's first time actually writing a script. And Sophie's Choice won Meryl Streep her first Best Actress Oscar. She plays uh, a Polish woman who's a Holocaust survivor and is carrying uh, some pretty heavy secrets. And it follows her, her unstable Jewish lover, who's played by Kevin Kline, his first film, and Peter McNichol, and the three of them live together in a, in a boarding house in Brooklyn after the war. And it's based on a William Styron novel. Pakula adapted it and got nominated for his screenplay, and that's another wonderful film. A little flawed. But Meryl Streep and Kevin Kline alone are worth the price of admission. And Pakula, again, kept a very steady work rate throughout the 80s and 90s. Started writing his own scripts more and more. And the 90s were a productive decade for him as well. He put out Presumed Innocent with Harrison Ford. I am not a Harrison Ford fan. I am not a Star Wars nerd. I could give a shit about Han Solo or Indiana Jones. Harrison Ford has never interested me as an actor. I have always found him boring as shit. Uh, so I could care less about Presumed Innocent, to be honest. Uh, he also put out Consenting Adults. He and Kevin Klein worked together again on that. He put out The Pelican Brief in 1993 with Julia Roberts, who was a huge star at the time, and Denzel Washington as well. And his last film was called The Devil's Own with Harrison Ford yet again and Brad Pitt. And that was Pakula's last film. It came out in 1997, and it was actually Gordon Willis's last one as well. He retired after that. And Gordon Willis, another thing, was only nominated for two Oscars. For Zelig, I think it was, and The Godfather Part Three. His best work never got him nominated for any Oscars. He was given a Lifetime Achievement Oscar, I think in the late 90s or early 2000s. But he got snubbed on far too many occasions. But in any case, so The Devil's Own proves to be Pakula's last film in 1997. And on November 19th, 1998, he died at the age of 70. And his death was a freak accident. Really just sad and strange way to go out. He was... He had been driving on the Long Island Expressway, like I said, Pakula was a New Yorker, and he had a house in East Hampton in Long Island. And he was driving there on the Long Island Expressway, he was headed there, he had been wor he was working on a script called No Ordinary Time, and it was going to be set during the, the Franklin Roosevelt administration and so on. So he was headed to his house, there was a metal pipe that somehow ended up on the road, it was lying on the road, and it is believed that a car ahead of Pakula kicked up the pipe hit the pipe, it kicked it up, and it sent it crashing through Pakula's windshield. It crashed through the windshield of his Volvo, struck him in the head, and Pakula ended up swerving off the road, crashed into a fence, and he was pronounced dead at the hospital. So just a, a strange and just kind of surreal way to go out in a very, a very sad and tragic death. He was 70 years old, like I said. And he was survived by his wife, Hannah Cohn Borston. Pakula was married twice in his life. He, first, he was married to the actress Hope Lang from 1963 to 1971. Hope Lang had been in the film's bus stop. She was nominated for an Oscar for Peyton Place. She was in the Frank Capra film Pocket Full of Miracles. She was in the original Death Wish. Had a great career. And she had had two children with Don Murray, who was her co-star in Bus Stop. And so they ended up becoming Pakula's stepchildren. The two of them divorced in 1971. And in 1973, he married his second wife, Hannah Cohn Borston, who was a widow. And she was a writer as well. And she had three children of her own. 
So Fakula had five stepchildren over the course of his life, but never never had any children of his own. And uh, his marriage to his second wife, Hannah Cohen Borston, was the basis for his film See You in the Morning, which came out in 1989. And it's interesting watching old interviews from Pakula. He was a very sort of, um, a very soft-spoken, very mild-mannered man. And he had a bit of a professorial air about him, you know, with the, his jackets with the elbow patches and his big beard. And uh, he could be a little long-winded and pedantic occasionally, just hearing him speak in interviews. But seemed like a pretty decent bloke, all things considered. And he had a reputation for being an actor's director. And a lot of actors he worked with over the course of his career sung his praises. Candace Bergen, Harrison Ford, Julia Roberts, Jane Fonda. I love rehearsing. I rehearsed Daryl Cuckoo for four weeks. I rehearsed Love and Pain for three weeks. I rehearsed Cuckoo for three weeks. Now, when I rehearse, in the first rehearsal, before a film starts, I only rehearse with the actors, myself, and the script supervisor. They're to take notes. And then when we start to shoot it, I throw the whole crew off the set. Everybody except the script supervisor and the actors and myself. And maybe an assistant director at the door to keep everybody out. I mean, there are more poker games about in my pictures. And, well, I just want the actors to not be afraid to expose themselves to try ridiculous things, to make fools of themselves. And when we have that basically worked out, I bring the cameraman in. And then I'll go with the cameraman and we'll run the scene for the cameraman and myself. I'll have the actors on the scene several times. We'll work out the changes from what the original design was that we had in mind. It takes a very sort of delicate hand when you're working with actors, and not all directors are capable of this. But Bakula had the sense to know when to work closely with actors and when to sort of leave them be. And he kind of likened working with actors to psychoanalysis. And he had, he had actually thought about being becoming a therapist at some point in his life when he was younger. And the parallels are kind of obvious, especially if you're more of a method actor, if you come from that school where you're sort of, you're looking within. You're drawing on personal experience, emotional memory. Well, I uh, happen to think that people do terrible work when they're terrified. And the essence of acting is releasing something inside yourself mm -hmm. and some actual emotional reaction. And uh, if you terrify people, they tighten up and they start acting hysterically and without reality and uh, you get terrible work. So I try to create a kind of easy environment. I don't always succeed. And but I like to feel that we're just doing this for fun somewhere or other. I mean, I tried that very much in all the president's men because people came on that set like we were doing the Ten Commandments, you know, and giving them to the world. And I thought, God, if this film gets pretentious, we're all in terrible trouble. So you, you try to keep things loose. And uh, sometimes they succeed, and sometimes they get very tense anyway. And Pakula basically had a knack for drawing some, some wonderful performances from his actors, and the results speak for themselves. Jane Fonda won for Clute in 1971. She won Best Actress, like we said. Jason Robards won his first Oscar for All the President's Men. Meryl Streep won for Sophie's Choice in 82, which is still regarded as one of, if not the best performance of her career. And Pakula also directed uh, plenty of other Oscar-nominated performances. Like I said, Jane Alexander was nominated for All the President's Men. Liza Minnelli got her Oscar nomination for The Sterile Cuckoo. Richard Farnsworth, who got nominated for Best Supporting Actor for a film called Comes a Horseman. Candace Bergen and Jill Clayburgh, like we said, both got nominated for Oscars for starting over. And the film, flawed as it is, the two of them are, are great in it, and those, those were deserved nominations. So like I said, Pakula's work speaks for itself. And interestingly enough... Over the course of his career, he had been nominated as a producer, got nominated for Best Picture for To Kill a Mockingbird in 1962, got nominated for Best Director for All the President's Men, and then for his screenplay for Sophie's Choice. Never won, unfortunately, but if that sort of encapsulates his talents in a nutshell. I mean, he's, he gets nominated as a producer, a director, and a screenwriter for three different films in three different decades. So quite an impressive career, and the Paranoia Trilogy, like I said, three incredible films. I hope I did them justice.
I know I've been talking for a long time, but um, I highly encourage you to watch them. And if, and if you, you want an introduction to Pakula's work, there is no better place to start, really. And so that is all I got for Alan Pakula and the Paranoia Trilogy. I hope you enjoyed this new format. Please let me know what you think of it. Shoot us an email at closesetpod at gmail.com. That is closesetpod at gmail.com. Any feedback, questions, comments, constructive criticism, whatever you've got, I say this every show. It is always welcome. And like I said, if you would like to keep up with the podcast, what's happening, you can follow us on the Instagram at closesetpodcasts. I always put up updates as to when new episodes are going to drop, what we're going to be covering. And if you would like to listen, subscribe, and do all that good stuff, we are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, of course, and Podbean. Whatever your pleasure is, you know how to find your podcast, you know what to do. And so that wraps up this new episode under the the new format. I kind of like it, and I think I'm going to continue with it, and I hope you enjoyed. And so until next time, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. I think improvisation is the most overused and most badly used tool of acting. And yet it, is, it can be helpful. I've used it sparingly. Uh, it can be self-indulgent. It can also get an actor in the part, into the part. Mm-hmm. Include uh, Jane Fonda. I used it in psychiatrist scenes. And I did two and a half hours of improvisations with her. Mm-hmm. It took place all day. And we kept sticking film in the, uh, cans of film in the, in the camera. And going. And you give her a motivation. And she'd start to go. And we'd continue these sessions. I only did that then because I felt they'd be very dull scenes unless you felt her really building up to this breakdown of defense. If you really felt the revelation of what was happening to her, what she was doing to herself, actually happened on screen. And I felt that the scenes themselves would not give her time to do that. So we went on for two and a half hours. And out of that, I think I used about four minutes on the screen. I have a wonderful collection of marvelous stuff of Jane Fonda goes to the psychiatrist somewhere in my cellar.